Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Vicky Price. Vicky is Chief Economic Advisor and a board member at the Center for Economics and Business Research. She was previously Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting, Director General for Economics at the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, and joint head of the UK Government Economics Service. Before that, she was partner at the accounting and consulting firm KPMG after senior economic positions in banking and the oil sector. She has held a number of academic posts and is a fellow and council member of the UK Academy of Social Sciences, a fellow of Society of Professional Economists and a companion of the British Academy of Management. She was, until recently, on the Council of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and is a member of the advisory board of the central banking think tank, OMFIF, and of the economic advisory group of the British Chambers of Commerce. Her books include Greekonomics, The Euro Crisis, and Why Politicians Don't Get It, Why Women Need Quotas, and her latest book, Women vs. Capitalism, was published by Hearst in November 2019. She's a frequent contributor to media broadcasts and debates on the economy and on the economic rationale for gender equality. She's the co-founder of Good Corporation, a company set up to advise on corporate social responsibility. And she's a freeman and liveryman of the City of London. Now we cover a lot of ground in this interview. And I start off by asking Vicky, to explain what the field of economics helps us to understand. We talk about Vicky's book, Women versus Capitalism, Why We Can't Have It All, and why women are more vulnerable to the fallout of the pandemic, and how Brexit is adding to the negative impact on women. We talk about digital and AI, and how this is transforming the way we work, and importantly, what women need to do so they're not left behind. We talk about the gender pay gap and the bonus pay gap and the role that women entrepreneurs play in driving more growth and prosperity in our economy. We talk about the massive transfer of wealth to women and what this means and what needs to change in order to reverse the negative trends, the negative impact on women that we're seeing as a result of the pandemic and Brexit, including having more women sitting at the table, making decisions in government and as policymakers. And we finish up by talking about why women's economic empowerment is key to building a better world. Vicky shares so much in this conversation. And if there's one key takeaway from this interview, it's that the government and policymakers must act now and they must do more to limit the detrimental impact on women as a result of the pandemic and as a result of Brexit. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Vicky, welcome to the Purse podcast. I'm so excited that you could join me today. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on it. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, and your journey to where you are today? 
Indeed. As you heard, I'm Vicky Price. I'm an economist. I studied economics at the LSE, but I grew up in Greece and came over to the UK to do economics specifically, actually, which I was rather keen on from quite a young age, not quite understanding what it was all about, but carried on with it and found that it was absolutely what I wanted to do and the thing that really enthused me. I then worked first in the banking sector, then in the oil sector, and then became a partner at KPMG, joined the government, where I was joint head of the government economic service and director general in the business department in charge of economics. And since then, I have been working in the private sector again as a consultant, economist and commentator, but also do quite a lot of teaching and have visiting professorships that I actually take very seriously. So I do get quite engaged with students as well. I'm also very passionate on the issue of women. I had joined every society you can possibly have that promotes women or helps with networking and mentoring and thinking about that and thinking about the implications of women not getting to the positions that they should be at to help the economy as they should encouraged me to write quite a lot on this topic. First of all, I wrote a book called Why Women Need Quotas, and my most recent book is Women Versus Capitalism. Which we're going to talk about, and I'm super excited about, Vicky. But what initially drew you to the study of economics? Because it is very unusual. We don't see a lot of female economists, do we? I mean, I studied economics A-level and economics at university, but I remember looking around and, and not seeing any female economists. What attracted you to the field of economics? And then also for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain at a very high level what the field of economics helps us understand about the world? I was reasonably good at maths. We didn't do any economics at all at school, but I had a bunch of friends who were intending to come to the UK. So I stuck with them a little bit and realised that they were all doing O-levels, as they used to be known in those days, and A-levels to come to study at various places in the UK, in London, Oxford, and so on. And they were doing maths and they were doing economics, they were doing physics. I had no real interest in physics. I loved maths, but economics suddenly sounded incredibly exciting when I realized that, first of all, it requires maths that I rather enjoyed, but second, that it's a way of thinking rather than anything else. There were so many possibilities if you started thinking about how the world functions, how consumers make choices, what government intervention does. So it felt as if my horizons would be seriously widened if I did that subject. And I managed to find somebody to teach me that properly in Greece, a professor of economics. So I was doing lessons with him in the evenings. I was going to a German school, actually, but I had to rapidly improve my English and learn all this business words that you needed for economics and all these equations that had, of course, to be explained in a certain way. And I found that actually seriously fascinating. So my fascination with the subject hasn't changed at all. So why does it matter? It's because everything that moves is part of this sort of economic landscape in which we operate. So decisions about work, decisions about transport policy or whatever there is that we might be taking to go to work. All these influence by demand and supply, by pricing mechanisms are out there, uh, possibly sometimes not so much pricing if some of those areas are monopolies and they don't actually 
perhaps compete as much as some other sectors might do. But even then, you have up to a point consumer choice, consumer influence if they don't like what is on offer. Consumer demand affects everything that you see around you. Wages are determined by how productive you are, perhaps, and what sectors you work in. And again, those sectors are affected by international issues and the environment that's out there, trade. All this is economics, whether we like it or not. Even some countries, of course, that are perhaps more controlled by the governments than others still have underneath it all some element of production, of course, and labor that is used in a certain way. It may not be paid in the right way. Production may not be as efficient as you'd like it to be, but it still is what makes the world go round. I think that's a lovely summary. And you know, to your point, I also felt studying economics had broadened my horizons and definitely made the world a lot bigger and more exciting. Now, you're an author of many books, one of which you mentioned already, Women Versus Capitalism. And I'm really interested to hear you talk about this book and why is it that women can't have it all in a free market economy? I look at it all, of course, from an economic perspective. But of course, we've had feminism, uh, you know, very prominent women talking about this. And also, of course, we had the Me Too movement. All these have heightened attention to the power imbalance that exists between men and women. But there is also an economic rationale for gender equality, which in my view is overwhelming. What is going on right now is that female labor force participation across the world is constrained by a number of things, particularly barriers to access to work the lack of property and other legal rights for women, marriage, of course, sometimes very early marriage in some societies, motherhood, which in itself constrains women's ability to work. And then, of course, you have lack of financial support. There isn't much entrepreneurship funding that exists. Venture capital funds don't really go for companies that are set up by women as much as they should do, even though they tend to be actually in the long term more successful. You have restrictions in access to education in many parts of the world. And I'm not talking here just about the advanced world. But if you look across, you find that there are all sorts of obstacles on girls being able to complete their education and then, of course, use it in any productive way. Then there are information asymmetries. This is very much an economic concept. In other words, if you haven't got transparency about what's going on, then you don't know enough to allow you to make a decision as to what you want to do with your life and which particular career paths you should follow. There's a lack of role models, so you can't find out from them what you should do. There is very bad career guidance. Again, what you look at is you know, where women are at present, and if they're not in the places you can see clearly, then you're not going to become a banker, for example, and do reasonably well. I'm afraid if you look at women's networking options, there are not that many. There are many more for men. There are mentoring deficiencies. And then, of course, if you look at the advanced world, there are all sorts of conscious and unconscious biases that exist, and they're allowed to persist. The result is, of course, that women feel unwanted or are not supported in particular areas, and then legislation around them isn't either isn't there or isn't strong enough, or even if it is, it is very often not enforced properly. The result, of course, is there's less competition in the labor market. There's a clear market failure from the economic viewpoint. So we end up with women across the world not used to the current or potential skill. And 
the economy suffers. It's very, very sobering hearing all of that. And women are more vulnerable to COVID-19 related economic effects now, aren't they, because of the existing gender inequalities. Vicky, can you summarise the fallout from the pandemic on the UK and global economy? And again, specifically what the impact is on women across certain industries, as well as socioeconomic groups? One of the consequences, if you like, of the problems that I outlined before is that women's pay tends to be lower than that of men, and very often they get ghettoized in very low-paid jobs. So if you see what's been going on, of course, with COVID, you find that women tend to, if you like, overpopulate uh, the jobs in the health and caring area, which themselves are not very well paid, but it means that they are themselves much more exposed to the virus to begin with. So according to the UN, women represent globally some 70% of health workers. I mean, that's a very substantial percentage. Absolutely. In the UK as well, I mean, women have been dominating the front line of the national health service and care sector. And therefore, as I suggested, they're much more vulnerable to the disease itself. And, And yet they've also been worse affected by job losses. And across the world, I think the estimate is that women are something like twice as likely to be losing their jobs during the pandemic. And there is a real danger, therefore, that any progress that we have seen in gender equality will be going backwards as a result of COVID. I think there is a point to make there that if you look across all sectors and you look across also all the income distribution points, you find that those who earn more tend to have more tasks of their jobs that they can do from home than those who earn less. And it means, therefore, that those who earn more have also been much more able of keeping their jobs than those who earn less. And women fall under the earning less category and therefore are the ones who are most susceptible to losing jobs, falling into poverty, but also, of course, as I said earlier, falling ill as well. Yeah, it's quite shocking just how many years we're potentially regressing. First of all, it is that working from home, as a number of people have had to do, uh, even if they've managed to keep their jobs, is a huge added stress for women. Uh, Because, of course, they have ended up looking after the children a lot more with school closures all across the world. They have had to have a bigger share of looking after the schooling of their kids. And what we find is if you look across Europe, there have been a number of surveys that suggest that women have found it particularly difficult to do the number of hours that are required of them as a condition, if you like, of keeping their jobs. Uh, And many have just left. And there is a very interesting set of data that shows, it's, it's interesting how we use, of course, now technology to much better effect. If you look at data coming from the mobile phone companies, so an IMF study which used anonymized Vodafone and other data in Italy, Spain, and Portugal to track the mobility of the people since the pandemic found that that the mobility of both men and women obviously dropped substantially, you know, because we got lockdowns and people didn't really travel as much to work. What seems to be happening is that women have dropped out a lot more out of being mobile. They were already less mobile because, especially if you have a child, what you tend to do is you start looking for jobs around you a little bit more. So your commuting distance goes down, whereas the commuting distance of the man goes up just to make up for any loss of income that the woman may have suffered. So what's happened now is that that gap has widened even further. 
And that is a problem. You're talking about the concerns of reversing any improvements that have been made before. It might take us a decade or more to get back. But once you have this type of evidence that women have simply withdrawn, it's quite difficult, especially when there's going to be a problem about the number of jobs that might be available in the future. It's quite difficult for women then to return. And what is more, return at a reasonable level in terms of pay. And what you find is that especially if women become part-time workers, then they don't work at the skill level anymore. At least the likelihood is that they will drop at least one skills level. That's very concerning. So although there had been improvements in the pay gap and so on, there is a worry that the data may not show us the right information, especially if women have simply left the market altogether. But you've already seen that the requirement in the UK, the legal requirement to inform the public and by producing data of what your pay gap is in your organization for the bigger firms has been temporarily withdrawn. So you don't actually have to do it or you didn't have to do it for last year. And who knows what's going to happen now? Because obviously firms are in difficulty that, you know, there's no security around in terms of, you know, how many people you may have in the future. Loads of people are on furlough. So there is a gap in the understanding of what's happening. And it is entirely possible we'll emerge from this with greater inequality, including greater gender inequality, which may not be reversed again itself for quite some time. And I have to ask, you know, we're in the UK. (laughs) We've also got Brexit to deal with. Indeed. How is this adding to the negative and detrimental impact on women? It really is quite worrying. What you've seen with COVID is, of course, there have been a number of sectors that have been affected very badly. And worryingly, those are sectors, if it's the hospitality sector, for example, retail, where women, again, are very heavily represented as workers. And that's a serious issue. Many of them were losing their jobs. And what has happened is that the various organizations, retail companies and so on, have used, if you like, the COVID crisis as a way of accelerating some of the trends that were already happening. So delayering, substituting people with machines, because, of course, you know, the moment you realize that it's quite difficult to relate face to face, what you do is you cut down that interface and you substitute people by machines. And of course, women suffer as a result. So we already know that AI and technology are likely to be affecting women disproportionately worldwide. So those are the sectors where women have been working. The truth is that areas such as manufacturing, for example, and construction, where women are less represented, have done, in fact, reasonably well. So what is likely to happen with Brexit is because trade will be affected already is, it is those extra areas that have done reasonably well so far, which are going to be added to the sectors with difficulty, certainly in the short term and possibly the medium term. As I said, women are not heavily represented there, but what it means, unfortunately, is slower growth in the economy. And slow growth in the economy then permeates through all the other sectors because every manufacturing job creates something like four service jobs uh, where there are women. And if you have any reduction in manufacturing, or at least a a slower growth in manufacturing, then obviously you affect the service sector as well. And that is going to be a huge problem. Yes, of course, you're going to need a lot more healthcare workers in the future. Those, though, unfortunately, are not particularly well-paid jobs. 
So women could perhaps move into those because we're going to need a lot more National Health Service employees, but it is unlikely to be in the slightest bit beneficial, really, in terms of the pay improvement for women, unless there is some radical change that takes place. Here again, we we come back to the fact that ultimately all of this has a massive impact on how much money they have. And I just want to read out this stat based on research, this is McKinsey, they estimate that 22% of employed women in the UK could find their jobs displaced by automation by 2030. What do women need to be doing to ensure that they're not left behind? Well, what they need to do is, of course, move into higher positions so that they're able to carry on working like the men would do in the areas uh, where, of course, there won't be those substitutions of people with machines. But of course, they need to move into new areas uh, and they need the skills to be able to do that. They need the education to be able to do that. And although women are better educated now, you need to be trained through your life. So the moment you disappear from work or you go and work part time, then you lose a lot of that advantage that you had at the beginning. Whereas those who carry on, particularly men and in full time employment, are the ones who might be able to get the new skills to continue to grow. And it's interesting, really. Entrepreneurship is a very important part of what encourages productivity in the economy. And uh, women entrepreneurs are few and far between, as we know. And there could be a very, very important change in GDP in economies more generally, uh, but also, of course, in women's well-being and the contribution to the overall welfare if there had been more, or that will be, hopefully, more women entrepreneurs as well. I think McKinsey and others have calculated sort of positive figures. And Alison Rose, who did this study, who is the head of the Royal Bank of Scotland, suggested that in the UK, GDP could be something like 250 billion higher if you had as many women entrepreneurs as men, or rather the percentage was roughly the same. So that's very, very significant. But of course, Technology and AI are an issue for everyone, but it needs to be addressed, this issue, in a way that also looks after women's interests too. Absolutely. And I think we've also seen the reason that women have opted out of the workplace to become an entrepreneur or self-employed freelancer is so that they can have the flexibility that they need in order to enable their kind of home life or family life as well as have you know interesting work that they can do on their terms? Yes, but what you find now is that every study that's looked at flexibility of the type that women would like to have, and especially now with COVID, we've seen how it can work properly and how it can work really badly. But flexibility generally, I mean, the studies have shown, increases productivity for a company if they do this properly and they lose fewer people, fewer costs in terms of replacing them, People are more motivated, happier, and so on. And they're just as productive, if not more, by working, let's say, four days a week rather than five days. And if you get rid of presenteeism, you don't have to be, now, of course, we don't have to be in the office any longer. But if you don't have to present yourself at 7.30 in the morning or whatever in the city, but you can do it from home and you can actually be flexible while you're doing it, then it could suit women really well. But what will not suit women well would be if you then expected them, in fact, to work considerably longer than would otherwise have been the case, which has been found to be happening with work from home because 
you can't necessarily control the hours people work and you expect them always to be at the other end of a PC, Mac, whatever, or at the end of the phone and to answer emails throughout the weekend. So that's not very comfortable for many people. So if you, you need to look at the flexibility that also encourages the greatest productivity to happen and also encourages women not to disappear from the workforce. It's not such a difficult task if one sets one's mind to it. But of course, in order to set one's mind to it, one has to really think of women, what they need and how to get the best out of them, if you like, while you're also encouraging the type of work environment that is amenable to being able to do more things than just work. But men need it too. And I think one of the major advances that we could have if we get it right for women is that men too will be able to work differently. And that's why I was so much in favor of quotas and quotas, particularly at the top of an organization, not on the board, where I don't think it makes very much difference, but in executive positions, senior positions, in order to keep the women there and make sure you achieve your quotas at that level over a period of time, then you need to encourage a different way of working. So once you do that, then obviously the men can benefit too. And quite a lot has been written by men themselves about how much they miss out, not looking after or seeing the kids enough as they grow up and not sharing in the household chores, if you like. And I always find it very interesting to read about, I mean, it's, it sounds quite obvious, the more women you have in senior positions, so in senior management, the more likely these senior women are to hire more women. And then, of course, you need a, a minimum threshold. So you need at least sort of 30% or 33%. And it's not that difficult to get your head around. Hire more senior women, keep them there. They will, in turn, hire more women and you can fix it. <laughs> this is all true that there was this myth of the queen bee, you know, somebody who really didn't want to have anybody else around her was female because they made it and why should they help anyone else? And they believe that they made it because of their own sort of excellence, if you like. Uh, but actually, it's mostly a question of luck. But nevertheless, the data suggests that that's not the case, that if you have, just as you suggested, more women doing the hiring, then they're more likely to hire a woman because they are themselves a woman. Not necessarily because they're hiring, you know, after their own image, but because you know, basically, they probably have a wider outlook. And that's probably why they got to where they got to anyway. And the chances are that if they look around them, there'll be just as many good women as there would be good men. And therefore, you end up with a reasonable balance without necessarily trying particularly hard. And I do really worry, going back to what you said earlier in relation to what's going to happen post-Brexit, that I mean, there are a number of sectors. Now, I mentioned, of course, manufacturing and construction, where there aren't very many women, but you know, the gaps are still quite significant there. But if you look at places like the professional, scientific and technical sector, or you look at the financial and insurance sector, what you find is that in both of those, women represent over 40% of the workforce. So professional qualifications are not accepted across the borders, which is a serious problem post-Brexit. And then you have the financial insurance sector not having any assurance at all, if you like, in terms of how it could operate in the future because they've lost mutual recognition. Now we're hoping for some sort of equivalence of regulation across to be agreed at some point. Still pretty bad news. 
then the question is what happens if there is retrenchment in those two sectors as well, and loads of companies simply move their operations abroad. And I know of a number of women who have already been told, yes, we'd like to keep you by the banks or hedge funds or whatever it is that they work for, but I'm afraid you need to move to Paris or Frankfurt or wherever, which is where we are expanding. And of course, they quit. So why do they quit? A man may have accepted it more easily. Even they, of course, would have problems with family and so on. Uh, But it is very, very difficult to see a way out for women in, in sectors which are likely to be badly affected and where until now they have been quite well represented in those sectors, even though there are substantial pay gaps. So the pay gap in the financial insurance sector, according to the ONS, was something like 30%, which is really rather high if you think that the pay gap was only about 9% overall, but that's significant, of course. And the professional one, about 20%. Within firms, much, much higher, of course, as we found out. So it is a worry. So your earlier question, are women going to fall further down the pay scales, or at least by comparison to the men, and will many more of them perhaps fall into poverty or risk falling into poverty if you look at what they get paid and the differences even in, in a number of other sectors? Then, yes, that is a problem if you combine COVID with Brexit. And it's an issue. And even you know across the world, if you look at health, um, I mentioned health isn't paid that well, uh, but some you know very large percentage of health workers is women. The women face a pay gap. You know, just as I said earlier, 70% of health workers are women. They face a pay gap of 28% in the sector. It's against 16% across all sectors. That's a UN figure for global health workers market. So it suggests to me that even there, there is a disadvantage. Because, again, even though women might make up the majority of the workforce, and I think you see this in retail as well, although now obviously women have gone through so much job loss in the sector because of the pandemic, it's because women aren't in these senior positions, they're not earning the very high salaries, which is why we see the massive pay gap. What I always find very fascinating, if if you look at the figures within financial services, hedge funds, etc., and you look at the bonus payments, the differentials are are just astounding. And we're talking at least 50-60% difference. Indeed, it was shocking, really, when some of these figures came out, because as you perhaps remember at the beginning, when firms had to publish their pay gaps, uh, quite a lot of professional firms didn't include their partners in it because they said, well, they're not employed, really, so we're not talking about a wage. And then, of course, when they did, the pay gap appeared to be quite significant. But where it is a real shocker, especially in the financial sector, is indeed in the bonus payments, where there are even bigger differences than just the pay. And that's for men and women in similar positions, inverted commas. I mean, we don't know exactly, of course, you know, what the size of the fund was that they were managing, say. But nevertheless, it does appear quite substantial, the gap that seems to be there on, on the bonus side. Mm. And there is another interesting thing about COVID itself. And that is that, of course, we had a furlough scheme here, not in the US, where people all just lost their jobs. and There were direct payments to individuals so they could keep spending and they didn't fall below the poverty line too easily. What we've seen in the UK is that, of course, the firms were quite 
capable, or some of them, to plug the gap, if you like, between the pay that the government was allocating for workers and what they were earning before, so the normal salary. And what you found was that men did get it, not completely, but something like 75% of them. The percentage of women who did was 65%. So you may think, well, 10% perhaps isn't that great, but it actually does make a difference. And it was, again, an indicator of some sort of discrimination taking place there as well. Yeah, all very sobering stuff. Vicky, I'd like to talk about the massive transfer of wealth that's taking place at the moment. So flipping this around a little bit, slightly more positive. So women's wealth is expected to reach $93 trillion globally by 2023. And I constantly think we don't talk about this a lot. And yet this massive transfer of wealth is happening. It's ongoing as we speak. In the UK, by 2025, women will own 60% of private wealth, and that number will continue to go up. I'm interested to know, in your view, what will the impact be on the world when women obviously come into possession of more money, more wealth? How do you think this is going to play out over the next 10 years or so? Well, first of all, I'm quite surprised about these figures, but I'm guessing that the main reason why they're there is because of inheritance. Uh, so women will inherit or, or either from family or from husbands who they might outlive. In a number of cases, women have been quite heavily involved in the companies that their families have been running, sometimes even heading them, which is very good. And you see quite a lot of expansion of that happening in places like China, for example, where there are quite a lot of women in the top rich list. So that's encouraging up to a point, but because a lot of it in the rest of the world is mostly inherited, you wonder what would happen to those firms that they inherit, whether they'd be just as interested in doing anything with them. What we found is that in the cases where a woman suddenly, either through divorce or any other way, inherits a lot of money, she tends to give it away. Well, at least there have been a number of very good examples where women just decide to give it away to charity. So whether they will use it for wealth creation or in a different way, I really can't tell. We were actually having this conversation. I was talking to Heather Ettinger a couple of weeks ago, who founded Luma Wealth Advisors in the US. And we were talking about how important it is to provide education and support to these women who perhaps have not looked after their money in the past, they've come into money in some way, and to be able to think about how they can allocate it. So it's not just about, even though it's obviously very important, it's not just about, I'm going to give this money to charity. It's also thinking about how can I use these funds to fuel the female-led innovation economy, for example? Can I set up a fund? There are many ways that the money can work for them, in addition to obviously allocating the money to public funds, etc. I agree. But it depends, of course, what we mean by education. I mean, we shouldn't assume that they don't really know what to do with their money, but they may not have quite understood or comprehended the extent to which women are disadvantaged all across the world in relation to receiving some of that venture capital money that would be incredibly useful to them or any other type of financial assistance that will encourage more uptake of women entrepreneurship or funding any other ideas that perhaps focus on enabling women to do better all across the world. So I think there are endless possibilities. And I think you're quite right to be raising it as an issue. Mm. 
Now, I'd like to talk about solutions. Um, we've highlighted the challenges. And if you don't mind, Vicky, I'll just share again figures with you from McKinsey Research that I found. They talk about the given trends. So we're talking specifically about the unemployment of women that we've observed over the past few months. If no action is taken to counter these negative effects on women, we estimate that global GDP growth could be $1 trillion lower in 2030 than it would be if women's unemployment simply tracked that of men in each sector. Conversely, taking action now to advance gender equality could be valuable, adding $13 trillion to global GDP in 2030 compared with the gender regressive scenario. And the middle path, taking action only after the crisis has subsided rather than now, would reduce the potential opportunity by more than $5 trillion. I mean, these are massive figures. What needs to change to reverse these negative trends and to accelerate change? I think what we'll need to see is that barriers to female labour force participation are reduced and they should be reduced all across the world. As you know, the World Bank tracks that and uh, has a report, I think every year, maybe every two years, I can't quite remember, uh, where it looks at the various restrictions, perhaps those that have been lifted, some have been reimposed, of course, but in many areas, moving to a slightly better environment for women and their ability to work. I think what clearly needs to happen is that there has to be a relook, particularly in advanced nations, at uh, support with childcare, but also, of course, we're seeing a lot of improvement for women with contraception and everything else and better health outcomes happening. So that's good news. At least we have a better basis from which to develop. But I think it is really the obstacles and uh, government intervention in a positive way, rather than having legal restrictions, uh, is the sort of thing that you need. And any advance that we have seen in the developed world for women has come through government legislation. So through removing some of the obstacles and through having legislation that positively promotes equal opportunity and non-discrimination. So it's extraordinary to think that only in a few decades ago in countries in Western Europe, you still couldn't open a bank account unless your husband signed it or you weren't allowed to even work. But the IMF has done some work along the lines that you describe, although the coronavirus impact, of course, was slightly later after they produced these figures. So in 2018, they looked at the welfare gain from removing barriers. They looked at output gain from closing the gender gap and the cost of not doing so, which is more or less what you were just describing. And of course, there are some parts of the world which have been slower in getting there and where, in fact, the welfare gain from removing barriers and the output gain would be considerably greater than perhaps in other places. So the Middle East and North Africa would benefit hugely. Next comes South Asia, next Latin America and the Caribbean and so on. So we do see that that's the main obstacle. I, of course, talk also about quotas. And you mentioned equality too. Political equality is very significant in getting to the right solutions in each country too. This leads on to my question. If we had more women sitting at the table making decisions in government, in cabinet, about policy, you know, around childcare, flexible working, would we see the changes that we need to see come into play a lot more quickly? If you look at the UK, for example, is that quite a lot of the progress made on government regulation, encouraging all this and pushing women and the equal pay and so on were pushed by women ministers at the time. And if you look even at Germany, where you know, they were a bit slow. It was as Minister for Women, 
I think it was Minister for Women Rather Than Employment at the time, when the current president of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, made the biggest move, I think, to help women in that country. So I think it's government and it's women who can make the change at the country level, if you like, in terms of legislation, much more than would be the case if it was all men making those decisions. It's quite interesting because if you look at the equality tables, it's the Scandinavian countries that do best. And amongst them, as an outlier, but doing rather well, is Rwanda. And the reason why they're doing so well is because of the political representation that there is. Women dominate, or at least did at the time the slide was prepared, that I looked at, dominated the political spectrum as far as I can see. And that made a big difference in terms of women's positions in the country itself. It makes a lot of sense. Now, Vicky, what message do you have for government and policymakers out there in order to help correct the market failure and gender inequalities that we've talked about? Message is that, as I've written in the book, that capitalism by itself isn't going to solve the problem. So you can't just wait and hope that perhaps because women are a bit cheaper, they will be employed in larger numbers and therefore, you know, the pay gap will be eliminated or that they will be rising through the organisation. That will not happen. So governments need to remove constraints in labour force participation, as I was saying, in the developing, but also in the developed world. They need to deal with the lack of seniority of women in most professions, focus more on role models. I mean, emphasis should be, particularly on the quotas front, on executive directors or senior managers, more or less as you were suggesting earlier, because they make a difference in the culture of an organisation. But then, certainly in terms of ways of working, you should stamp out long hour culture, perhaps with legislation and more advice, more mentoring should be there, but also put into law the right to get flexibility in work. There is a law that says you can ask for it, but nothing that says you're necessarily going to get it. What I think the German government is intending to do, and maybe they already pushed it, is to have a right to work from home from here on. So I think COVID has made a difference. Uh, then we need much more transparency of information. We've seen that with the pay reviews, but look also at the sort of revolution, in inverted commas, of the BBC when it was shown how clearly disadvantaged women presenters were, for example, and then have serious penalties for non-compliance in terms of achieving you know, better equality. But I think very crucially, Help with childcare is absolutely important. In addition to enforced paternity leave, I think subsidised childcare or free if possible, but seriously subsidised, as we see in some countries, particularly in Northern Europe, means that you can encourage women to go back to work and take away the cost of motherhood, which is the one area that leads almost invariably to this pay gap suddenly emerging and then becoming bigger and bigger through the years. So there is one final thing on healthcare workers and care workers more generally and so on that we've been talking about and of course the importance of what we learned from the pandemic. I think we need in the developed world considerably greater value as a society on, on those lower paid jobs we look at that women end up doing because they are so crucial. And because they are for the moment low paid and because we may not get out of this for a while, I am a great believer in the universal basic income idea. 
so that we don't let anyone go close to the poverty trap and then fall through it. And what would you say to women, Vicky, right now who are having to deal with so much and are simply not getting the support they need? What should they be thinking about right now? Talk more loudly, probably, and explain the situation. Uh, make sure that politicians hear it. Unfortunately, very little has been heard about the plight of women. Yes, articles have been written. You and I are talking about it. Your podcast have covered it. Lots of surveys have covered it. But it's not a top priority. Uh, there is a lot of concern about the young and how they're losing out. But actually, it's the young and women who are losing out right now, you know, most clearly. And that needs to be at the top of the agenda. I think women need to organise better. They need to shout louder. They need to really make their views heard and known. And they should expect politicians to listen. So organisations that put all this together, fora that exist that can make that public, make sure that the female MPs all know about this and are pushing it. Admittedly, it's a little bit difficult with Brexit and COVID to get the attention, but if it's realised that Brexit and COVID, particularly the way that it might affect women, if we put the two together, are likely to be pretty bad for the growth of the economy, then surely some plans need to be put in place to ensure that half of the population of any country, basically, and certainly the UK, does not find itself losing out because the economy will just not recover as we would like it to be. Frankly, it has all sorts of implications for the future. Productivity will be lower, not just growth will be lower, but with productivity lower, then growth is even lower. Competitiveness will be lower. Money coming into the treasury will be lower. The ability to level up, as this government wants to do, will be lower. So it's very crucial. I think it is one of the issues that needs to be tackled and not be forgotten for any length of time. It's more or less what you were saying earlier, quoting the forecast, that if we don't deal with it now and just wait to handle it, you know, at some point after COVID is over, if it ever will be, then we will lose out as a country, but also if it's uh, repeated across the world, then world growth will also be lower as a result. There's a lot that needs to be done. And, and yes, as, as you said, Vicky, we can wait until this is over. But of course, we don't know when it will be over and if it ever will be over. Uh, so in fact, it's absolutely crucial that the government and policymakers and employers, businesses are looking at this and taking this stuff really seriously. Well, obviously, if we had more women leaders of companies, that would be because I do really believe that the whole environment has changed from that point of view, and women at the top actually realise a lot more now uh, what the issues are than perhaps you would have thought maybe a decade ago. And in my view, for women, economic empowerment is absolutely the key to reversing the power imbalance that exists in decision-making, and the more of that we have, the better it will be for women. Yes, that's a wonderful sentence to end on there, Vicky. Thank you so much for sharing everything you did today. And your work is so important and, and so needed. So thank you. If listeners want to find you, connect with you online, what's the best way to do that? 
through Twitter, I would guess, which is at real Vicky Price, Price with a Y and no gaps in between. And of course, you can just look me up. You'll probably find my email quite easily. But I have written the latest book being Women versus Capitalism, a number of things on women. And you can probably find me very easily through that as well. Vicky, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.